Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. of July. Welcome, 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 welcome. Hey, let me just tell you in advance that Paul Perot, who makes all of uh, the jazz happen during this programming, is going plus on vacation rock, starting plus tomorrow. You name, you name it. I do all sorts of music here. All of it. Yeah. All of it. If it's happening, Paul is doing it. And so in advance of your vacation, which begins tomorrow, Paul, we will do our best not to break the show while you're gone. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do fine. I don't know. And if we do break the show, then that will just create work for you. When to, you put return, to put it back together. To put it back together. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we, will, we will seek to not make a Humpty Dumpty of the whole thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. that's what Super So thank for. you in advance and, and have tape. a great time. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. I got a few uh, Fourth of July um, reflections. Just a few. Just a few. Because Nick Pitts is probably already... Uh, waiting, and he and he and I have some great things to talk about, including the rise of the sovereign Moors, about which I know nothing. Um, all right, Fourth of July, independence. So, lots of great reminders over this weekend about um, our connectedness and the sources of our blessing. Um, and yes, the challenges, the struggles, the sacrifices, the history—often a history fraught with sin. Which, by the way. All of history is fraught with sin, unless you go all the way back to the actual good old days in uh, in the beginning, like right before the fall. That, those were the actual good old days, and you got to go all the way back to the beginning to find them. Um, here's the good news. They are coming again when freedom will actually ring and reign supreme over all of history in all places, in all spaces. But that's the coming of the kingdom of God on earth as it already is in heaven. So uh, those are some of the Thoughts over the weekend and conversations. There were great opportunities to celebrate healthy patriotism without venerating everything about the past. Like we ought to be able to do that. Great opportunities for conversation across generations. That at least happened uh, in my family. The uh, grandparent generation and then those of us in the parenting generation and then the grandchildren generation all had the opportunity to intersect and talk about some things. And, you know, the, the, the grandchilding generation, which are basically very late high school and college-age students at this point, wanted to add uh, something orange to the red, white, and blue display um, as, a, uh, as a salute and a recognition to Native American peoples. Uh, that led to some interesting conversations uh, generationally. Independence from and independence to was one of the conversations that we had. Uh, We talked about our dependence on God, our interdependence on one another, uh, the blessing that it is to be in a family that has members of the military as a part of it. Uh, My mom recalled a story to us that, frankly, I don't think I had ever heard before. Um, She had two cousins uh, who went off to war and about whom, you know, they knew nothing until the day that um, they were walking down the um, 
gravel road um, back to her parents' home at the time, um, and her mom falling to her knees and just weeping at the arrival of these two nephews home from war. Um, Also, conversations about true freedom. We got to talk this weekend about our freedom in Christ and the bondage that people who don't know Christ um, are in. And it led to conversations about the kingdom of God and a discussion of if and when and where and how we experience that on earth as it is in heaven and how we pray in the Lord's Prayer those words, um, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and how we get to participate in that even now, giving people glimpses of it. So there you go. Thoughts, uh, reflections on 4th of July, 4th of July weekend, independence, dependence upon God, interdependence on one another. Great conversations for us to be having in the culture writ large. All right, Nick Pitts uh, and I are going to talk about the very nuanced and sometimes very inconsistent views that Americans have on life issues. You know what? It comes down to how you ask the questions. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Nick Pitts. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. You can also find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. Welcome back, sir. Good morning, Carmen. A Monday on a Tuesday. So happy mm-hmm. to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. All right. So I um, thought that this conversation about the way you ask questions in polling um, was super duper fascinating. So let me um, let me tee it off this way. Um, we have an APNORC poll, and then we have a Gallup poll. Um, they they kind of tell us different things about American views of abortion, um, but they tell us different things because they, they ask different questions. Can you talk with us about that? Yeah, so um, so the APNRC poll, it's, it asks approximately 1,100 respondents to share their views on abortion of whether it should be legal or illegal in all or most cases during the three trimesters of pregnancy. And what the APNRC uh, poll found is that 61% of respondents approved of legal abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy. So that means about 34% said abortion should be le- legal in all or most cases at the second trimester, which begins at the 13th week in the fourth month. And then finally, the uh, percentage trickled down to 19% in the third trimester in the weeks, the 29th to 40th. Now, let's compare and contrast that with Gallup data that was released with similar questions last month, but was a different result. And it showed 56% of respondents would oppose abortion after the 18th week of pregnancy, which falls within the second trimester. Now, compare that again to the um, the, the AP poll that found that 34% said it should be legal in all or most cases in the second trimester. So we're seeing approximately a 20% difference there. And then, um, in contrast, 66% of respondents in the AP poll said abortion should be illegal during uh, the second or um, during the second trimester. 81% thought it should be illegal. So we're seeing very much how, like you said, how we're framing the the question: one, from a time standpoint, and then two, uh, from a trimester standpoint. It's just it's just very interesting. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I it provoked me to ask the question, does it matter how the question is asked in terms of how I respond? And I'm sure that if I were being, um, you know, if I were part of a, a poll, um, this kind of polling, which happens uh, over the phone, um, how the questions are asked, the order in which they're asked, how much time I have to think about it, um, what else is going on, you know, in the moment. I just think that for Christians, these are these are questions that we have to examine um, before we're asked. And, you know, I, I say frequently, look, my pro-life ethic uh, is that I am pro-life from natural conception to natural death. Well, when I add the word natural to both of those, and when I use the term conception, um, like I recognize I have to be prepared to define what I mean by natural conception and what that rules out in my pro-life ethic and what I mean by natural death and what that rules out in my pro-life ethic. And then I have to be able to defend that position biblically. And so I think that for everybody listening right now, that would be the challenge I would lay before you. You know, what is your pro-life ethic? How do you define the the terms of that? I define them as natural conception and natural death. Um, and then you got to be able to biblically defend that. And can you? And if not, don't answer a poll about what you believe. Like yeah. that would be, I would say, just say, I'm not prepared to answer that question if you haven't actually thought through it. Yeah. You, you know, there's a couple of things that are going on in, in polling right now. One is the idea that um, how many of us still even have a home phone right now where we're able to answer that so you, you've got a contingent of a population now that's getting rid of their home phones and are just relying on cell phones. And many pollsters are still relying on home phones to be able to answer. So there you're skewing some of your data. Second point of what we're saying is that there's just a distrust of, of pollsters as well, um, just because we've seen in the past presidential elections, polling has just been off so much. And some people have uh, determined that polling is off to feed a particular bias, and so they're just distrustful of pollsters. But then it brings us to the second uh, qualm, not qualm, but second issue that we have to identify that you've really touched on right now is the idea that uh, what do you believe? Like, how how do you believe your pro-life ethic? In the Southern Baptist Convention over the past um, month or two, uh, especially highlighted at the most recent convention, we, we saw that there were two kind of camps. Both camps were very much in line with being pro-life. Just how do you accomplish that, whether it's through the incrementalist position of slowly but surely um, uh, producing and, and advocating for bills that take into life the count of the mother and are trying to incrementally uh, move down that number of abortions, trying to make it, one, um, unthinkable for the mother. Uh, uh, And then there's another approach that won the day at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, which is to abolish abortion at all costs um, and not put in language that would have the health of the mother. And, And those are two significant uh, camps within Southern Baptists as well as the larger populace. And like you said, Carmen, I completely agree. We just need to give thought to that, um, especially in polling like this that really frames it underneath the banner of which trimester. We, do you take into account the mother or not, um, uh, et cetera? All right, getting everybody thinking early this morning about our life ethic and our ethics related to life. Um, Nick Pitts and I will return in just a moment. We've got a really interesting story out of the city of Denver. 
We're going to talk about their STAR program and how it is providing a potential, I think, hopeful way forward for those who make mental health calls to 911. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking with Nick Pitts, uh, Institute for Global Engagement. I'm going to read the lead of an article um, from NBC News. The calls come into 911 every day. A homeless man is standing outside a liquor store screaming and acting aggressive. A woman is having a mental health crisis and says she can't feel her body or her face. A man who was escorted away by police 90 minutes ago has returned and exposing himself urinating on buildings. Instead of being routed to the police, this type of call is now handed over to STAR, short for Support Team Assistance Response, a year-old program that sends a social worker and a paramedic to low-level emergency calls. Of the 1,351 calls STAR responded to over the first year, not one had to request backup from the Denver Police Department. Uh, Nick, it seems to me that these numbers are really significant. First of all, 1,351 calls that were mental health related to 911 in one year seems significant. Um, That's an average of four calls a day. I think it points to a mental health crisis in America and the fact that we don't have a plan nationwide for how 911 deals with that. Yeah. um, One, we we can take our uh, prior to pandemic. We haven't seen post-pandemic numbers. Prior to the pandemic, we were beginning to see a decrease in homelessness. Um, and while it was a decrease in homelessness across the country, there was an increase in homelessness in particular cities. So it appears as though they're beginning to foment and really concentrate in bigger cities. And one of those bigger cities is Denver. And it's really fascinating the approach that uh, the Dem- uh, Denver uh, city has done when it uh, broaches this idea of individuals that are suffering from mental health issues. Um, Because the reality of the matter is uh, best estimates are approximately 40 percent of individuals that are homeless um, suffer from mental health issues. And um, it required it then asks the question, Okay, so if the if the police, if the city are supposed to respond in a way that one enforces the law to be able to punish evildoers and also encourages peaceful, peaceful life and keep the peace in the city. How best to respond to those individuals? Is it with um, is it with police force, or is it potentially bringing in individuals that have um, um, mental health specialties to be able to deal with these particular issues to be able to restore the police? And what Denver has found thus far is that they're responding um, and they've created a new type of task force, the STAR program, to be able to address some of these issues. But then hope it appears that uh, they haven't had to request backup similar to police once because an, an, uh, an issue or an encounter has gotten out of hand. Yeah, I just I hope that other cities across the country will look at Denver Star program. Um, and then I think that, you know, we as Christians and communities across the country, we need to recognize that um, whatever the social safe, safety net was prior to. Uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, every thread of it has been stretched in the last two years and some of it to the breaking point. And um, people are falling through the cracks. The numbers are really significant. Homelessness is on the rise. Um, Ten out of every thousand people in the nation's capital are homeless. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the numbers are just kind of staggering in some cities across the country. In other places, um, homelessness is still, you know, relatively invisible. Um, and mm-hmm. so I would encourage you, wherever you're listening right now, um, you know, check with your local police department and just say, hey, how many encounters are you having in our community with people who, um, you know, are not living in some site, in some sort of recognizable shelter? Um, yeah. Because your police will know. And that gives you an opportunity to have a conversation at your church and a conversation um, with others in the community. If you want to just focus on children who are homeless, um, maybe that's an easy entry point for you into the conversation, um, because that is often mental health related in terms of the adults in those children's lives. So just all kinds of opportunities there yeah. uh, for us to engage as Christians. Yeah, Carmen, I completely agree. Just I, I like to just think about the, like a thought process, a thought exercise for a second. How hard would it take for one of your listeners to become homeless. I'm thinking about myself that I would have to one, lose all my friends, then be able to go back to my family, then have to lose my savings. Like it just requires a a precipitous fall for me to actually end up on the street. And think about those individuals. Those are individuals that it hasn't just happened overnight. There's been a series of events and circumstances that have taken place to get them to that particular point. And, um, and hopefully we can, as Christians especially, we should look on it with compassionate eyes. But how might we be able to um, be a, a little grace to them um, during this particular time? Absolutely. All right, um, Nick, we don't have much time to cover it, but I gave you an assignment. And so oh, I, I would like... I ready. I know. I would like to um, hear your report this morning. Um, what <laughs> happened in the standoff on I-95 in Massachusetts and how is it related to the rise of the sovereign Moors? Yeah, so you've got the rise of the Moors uh, that are a kind of a militant uh, group, self-sovereign little group out of Rhode Island. Approximately about a thousand people, as best we can tell. These are individuals that refuse to pay taxes, get driver's license, register firearms. From a religious standpoint, they're tied back to the Moorish Science Temple of America. This was happening during the Great Migration for African Americans um, during uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. Also during the time of the rise, uh, the rise of the Nation of Islam as well during this time. They claim to be usually Islamic of faith, and they are directly t- they consider themselves tied to the Moabites during this time as well. Um, just a fascinating little group. Louis Farrakhan has acknowledged their contributions of their founder and has tied them into the uh, the founding principles of the Nation of Islam. Essentially, they be- they have become more violent over the past ten years believing that they have a message of peace and just contradictory in terms. They have a message of peace, but are utilizing uh, at times violent measures to be able to um, uh, advocate for that. All right. And over the weekend, um, a a heavily armed, um, almost militarized group of these individuals was stopped on Interstate 95 and it shut down Interstate 95 in Massachusetts for some period of time while the police sorted things out. And so um, 11 of these individuals uh, were arrested on a range of, uh, of violations. But you can imagine if you don't have a driver's license and you don't register your weapons, then if you are found to be driving with weapons, the police get upset about that. So there you go. That's what's going on. And I think that this is going to be an interesting conversation going forward. Oh, yeah, very much so.
because they don't they don't look like let's just use the word look here by basic observation they don't look like the groups of people who might be in other parts of the country who are understood to be um uh militarized uh, groups of people who are anti-government. But this is clearly an anti-government, militarized group of people. They just look really different than than others who might identify with similar ideologies. Is that fair? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Very much so. Yeah. So it's fascinating and it's worth uh, it's worthy of knowing about and it's, uh, it's probably worthy of our conversation going forward. All right, Nick, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you as always so much. Um, well done on your assignment late last night. The rise of the sovereign Moors. Thanks so much, Carmen. Great to be with you. You too. That's Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at jnickpitts. We'll be right back. All right. The Taliban is on the march. Over the weekend, Taliban insurgents swept through a series of districts in northern Afghanistan, Uh, In desperate retreat, more than 1,000 Afghan government troops fled on Monday across the border um, into um, uh, Tajikistan. Uh, It's the third such wave of Afghan government troops to flee into Tajikistan in just three days, the fifth in two weeks. It is an area um, of uh, of anti-Taliban resistance, but it basically signals that Afghan's northern border um, is is fluid. The Tajik president has ordered a mobilization of 20,000 reserve troops to the border, but they have um, also recognized that as one of the poorest nations in Central Asia, um, they are not prepared for the kind of refugee influx as people flee Afghanistan as the U.S. Um, and others pull out of that country. More on Afghanistan and what we can expect from there next with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. We'll be right back. I grew up in a three-channel world. I'm not talking about television channels. I'm talking about communicating. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Remember when there were three ways to communicate? Face-to-face conversations, a written letter, or a phone call? That's it. Now we have countless forms of engagement, and they're updating all the time. Most of us use the three-channel approach, but teens do not. Some of the new technology leads to a lack of deep connection. Does your teen stick to short one-liners through text or Twitter? Have you noticed that they're great at broadcasting their thoughts, but out of practice when it comes to listening? Maybe it's time to have a little more face-to-face time with your team. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. Joining me again this morning, my friend Luke Moon. You can find him at the Philos Project, P-H-I-L-O-S. Those of you who have um, thanked me in the past for spelling it, there you go, Philos Project. Um, Also, Providence Magazine, one of my favorite resources out there at the intersection of American foreign policy and the way Christians Need to be thinking Christianly about such things. Luke, welcome back. 
Hey, Carmen. Good morning. Good All right. Yeah, it's good to have you. Let's talk a little bit about um, what's going on as the United States continues to pull out of Afghanistan. Listen, that whole situation seems to be, I mean, there's no real great way to pull out, you know, of a nation after being, you know, in it for war for 20 years. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, this is, you know, this, I guess as bad as we can expect. Um, you know, there was there was a report I saw where, you know, we just basically pulled out of Bagram Air Base uh, without even letting anybody know. We just kind of like, you know, <laughs> walked out the door and left the keys on the counter. Mm. And it's a bad when, situation. You know, you've spent a lot of time in um, in other parts of the world, you know, like away from the United States of America. And a lot of people listening right now will never actually leave uh, the United States. They may never leave the lower 48. Um, they may never even travel as far as uh, as Hawaii or uh, Alaska. Um, very unlikely folks will go as far as Puerto Rico. All right. So when we uh, certainly not other places around the world where America has you know, like genuinely vested interest. And so when we think about places like Afghanistan and we think about why we went there in the first place and what we sought to accomplish, um, some of the language that I heard just yesterday from people in elected political office is this language of exporting democracy. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, since you've been to so many places and seen so many things, like democracy is not easily exported to other places. Like it's it, it's democracy is kind of a naturally grown thing. Am I wrong about that? Um, well, it is and it, it and it isn't right. Like it's, you know, all forms of government are, I mean, the, a lot of countries, uh, you know, have have aspired to democracy. I mean, but you got to think back to, you know, the basically 2000, you know, when when George Bush was was elected. One of the things that I distinctly remember was there was a there was, you know white paper on, you know, there was a lot of problems going on around the world, particularly on what was called the Arab street, you know, like this rise of like, where's mm. all these terrorists coming from? Right. And the response was, well, if, if, if you, if you like pr promote democracy around the world, then it will give rise and it will give energy to all these people who don't have jobs and are kind of aimless. It will give them something to, to kind of fight for, right. They have, they have vested interests. They have, they have, uh, you know, have a level of autonomy. They have those kinds of characteristics that nations aspire to, right? And and so, uh, you know, as a result, that was the goal of the Bush administration, uh, Bush W. And 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 it, it, you know, it was part of you know the Afghan situation, part of uh, you know Iraq, and and I mean, there was a you know there was a point in which Libya looked like it was turning the corner. Right. And then 9-11 happened. And, it, you know, it's it's hard to tell whether or not things would have ended up differently if we had not had a 9-11. You know, the world would be a different place. But we did. And as a result, you know, Afghanistan was the place where the Taliban planned all that um, or, or Al Qaeda. And and then, you know, we went into Iraq as well. And 20 years later, you know, we are, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm loath to say that we're among the nations that 
break ourselves upon the mountains of Afghanistan, the empires, we should say, perhaps. Uh, but it sure seems that way. You know, the, the Greeks tried, the British tried, the Russians tried, and the Americans tried. And those people I, do not want to be ruled by somebody else. Yeah. Well, which maybe wouldn't be surprising to those of us who don't want to be ruled by somebody else. I, I'm thinking here of Alexis de Tocqueville's emphasis in um, democracy in America, you know, that Americans have a habit for self-government or self-governance. We like to form associations that allow us to solve problems that government can't, but then we convert that in foreign policy as if we can solve the problems of other people in other places. And I just think there's a there's a level of self-awareness that's necessary for Americans who, you know, we have the greatest system in the world, as flawed and broken as it may be, um, but we have the greatest system in the world. But it, it, it really only works when people themselves recognize democracy as the greatest thing and then build it in their own place. So I, I just... Um, I, but you got to promote something, right? Like, what do you promote? I mean, the, like, the yeah. problem is, is that, is that we're, it's not like we've stopped promoting an ideology or an idea. The problem is, the current one is not with the American flag; it's with the rainbow one, right? Mm. Like, we are not done promoting the, like an American perspective of the world. It's just right now we're not promoting democracy around the world. We're promoting something else, and. And it's not surprising that also, the, you know, parts of the world hands for that, too. And and so I, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, if we are going to be in the business of recommending to nations, hey, you know, here's a form of government that you should try. Right. That Because there there aren't an infinite number of options. Right. There's democracy. There's autocracy. There's totalitarianism. Uh, there's oligarchy, oligarchy. I mean, there's not, there's not a ton of, of ways that people organize themselves in a, in a, in a, in a government way. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't want to, I think the, the problem is trying to promote democracy at the end of a gun that seems to not work very well. Um, but I, I would, I, I'm not so happy with our current soft power, uh, you know, uh, ideology we're promoting around the world either, though. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. We have a listener who says promoting a system of government without also promoting the creator God is simply a fool's errand. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with that. And I think that is uh, one of the great challenges that we have today because America, um, Americans are not of one mind in terms of what we ought to be promoting morally around the world. We are a great exporter of abortion, and we have rainbow flags raised at embassies around the world. And that's confusing, not just to people here in the United States of America, it's confusing to the rest of the world. What is it that we are exporting? All right. Hey, Luke, we got to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, let's talk about um, T. Gray. And then um, I want to talk about China at, uh, well, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, at 100 years old. Those conversations up next with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. We'll be right back. All right, we are talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project and from Providence Mag 
Um, Luke, let's talk about what's going on in Tigray. Uh, now, on top of everything else, there's there's famine. Yep. Also, you know, I don't know, Carmen, do you remember the, the famine in the 80s in Ethiopia? Yeah. It's yeah, I mean, like... I- it's like it's like it's like bell bottoms coming back. I mean, what's up with this world right now? I mean, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, rem- it's crazy. you know, I remember when you talk about that, I remember Frank Wolf's Congressman Frank Wolf's like that was his turning point as a as a Christian in Congress. That was his turning point when he held a dying child in Ethiopia for whom he could do nothing. Um, that's really when he came home and said, we have to build coalitions of help and aid based on our pro-life ethic. Um, And that really, I mean, that was the moment of conscience turn for him. And so God does use moments like this in places like Tigray to burrow into the hearts and minds of people of means, notably Mm -hmm. every American, to say, I, I, God cares as much about the child who died in, in the moment that I was talking about that, the child who died in Tigray because there was not enough food, as God cares about the child who's going to a $1,000 day camp this week in America. Right. No, it's, it's, it's I mean, the, the, the famine that is, that is like on its way that's that's gonna happen is is like the like the one in the eighties, completely man made. Completely mm. man made. Mm. Uh and and this one is is, you know, there's there's basically the bridge that would take food aid into the region has has been destroyed basically. And so people are now uh you know they're you know they're struggling to 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 get food and they're in the you know the Eritreans aren't going to allow food in either because they're in, they're aligned with Ethiopians on this and and uh, it's going to be it wouldn't surprise me if if it becomes another you know I mean I don't know if we it, another one of those a generation gets to watch pictures of of starving babies but the problem is that I I don't know that you know how that plays on TikTok and if anybody's awake enough to care. Yeah. For those of you who have been paying attention to other things, the United Nations uh, has said 400,000 people have crossed the threshold for famine. Another 1.8 million are on the brink of famine. Um, we have been talking about the uh, the Tigray region um, on the border of Ethiopia uh, since November when fighting broke out. And so if you can just think back to how many months it's been since November and then imagine that uh, you have no access to food uh, by this point in the midst of all of that. Um, Luke, let's turn our attention in the final minutes we have together to the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, you can start this conversation wherever you want. You know, the, the CCP claims to have brought prosperity. Um, my headline might be different. Were I writing it? Well, they, well, they did. I mean, they they did bring prosperity. The problem is that they brought prosperity on the backs of you know uh, sixty million dead under under Mao. I mean, one of the one of the one of the stories that that I I can't help but remember is that there was a moment where they thought you know there isn't 
metal is the most valuable commerce in, in industrial nations. They have metal. And so they basically told everybody to like, you know, turn everything into, you know, like, you know, boil down their or melt down their doorknobs and everything metal they could find, right? It was this big push towards metal and industrialization, right? And it didn't matter that the metal that they were melting down was just junk. But what happened was they they also were like, you know what? There's the, the birds, they eat all the seeds when we plant the seeds. And so if we got rid of the birds, there would be, we we grow so much more food. And so they basically made everybody uh, not let the birds land and they killed off probably billions of birds. And mm. what they didn't realize was the birds ate the bugs and the resulting um, famine that took place after that killed estimates estimates of 60 million people. And that was because they took the they took the farmers and put them in as professors and took the professors and put them in as farmers and they killed all anybody with glasses. It was it, it was brutal. It was a brutal uh, regime and it continues to be a brutal regime. And yes, you know, the the per capita income of the average Chinese is significantly more than it was even 20 or 30 years ago. But it's come at a terrible price. And it's it's the, the, communism is nothing to be celebrated. And it, it's, it's an embarrassment to me that that there are people uh, in our nation who who and, and even leaders and 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 people in media, they're like, you know, have any have any good words to say uh, about communism and the Communist Party. It's a disaster. But in short, it's a disaster. I loved an interview that I um, heard briefly on the radio over the weekend. And here's what I remember about it. He's a um, he's 100 years old. He turned 100 years old on uh, on Independence Day. His name is Stanley and he lives somewhere in New York. That's how much I like gathered. And then, you know, I couldn't find out any more information. But I loved he's a World War Two veteran, not surprisingly. Um, and I loved what he had to say. Uh, about America and about liberty and about family. Um, and so I guess that maybe one of my encouragements to people listening would be find somebody who's a hundred and ask them what they think about communism. Like don't ask somebody who's 14 or 24, ask somebody who's a hundred. And there's nearly a hundred thousand people in America right now who are over a hundred years old, 97,000. So you should be able to find one. Um, and ask them what they think about communism, because I think part of the challenge we face, Luke, is that, um, you know, people have all of these, like, total misunderstandings about communism and socialism. And if they would ask somebody who fought communism and socialism, who know the reality of war, um, that it would it would help. Yeah, I, that would be that would, that's a that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Stanley Waltzman. I love our listeners. Somebody came up with his name. His name is Stanley Waltzman. He turned a hundred on the fourth of July. He's a World War II vet. There you go. That's a shout out to Stanley today. That is a hundredth birthday worth celebrating. The hundredth anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Not so much worth celebrating. Exactly. How's that for a conclusion to the topic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we teach that up. Oh, hey, I also, I hear again, I love our listeners. I also have a listener who just sent me this link. 
um, hey, go to the Gospel Coalition and read Zhang San's testimony, Reflections on the 100th Birthday of the Chinese Communist Party, My Life as a Christian Under a Communist Regime. There you go. I love our listeners. Thank you. All right. That's at thegospelcoalition.org, My Life as a Christian Under a Communist Regime. Um, Luke, there you go. We have great listeners this morning. Everybody's uh, tuned in. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Hey, thanks, man. We'll talk with you soon. All right. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, absolutely. That's Luke Moon. You can find him at philosproject.org. We'll be right back. Um, I love it when you guys, you know, pop into the conversation and give us great conversational fodder. So now I have had a minute to scroll through this Gospel Coalition piece, My Life as a Christian Under a Communist Regime. I have tweeted it out for those of you who follow me on Twitter at Carmen LaBerge. Uh, this, uh, This testimony begins thusly. I started to read the Bible because I was suspicious of everything I learned in my Chinese school, Maoism, socialism, Marxism, and and their deeper roots. My suspicion began in 1997, my second year in college. I happened to visit an online memorial marking June the 4th, the terrible day in 1989 when protesters in Tiananmen Square were crushed. The memorial's articles and photos uh, overturned my knowledge about what happened in Tiananmen Square, and in the end, my suspicion and doubt led me to the roots of communist ideology, atheism, and the theory of evolution. Uh, He he goes on to say that, you know, realizing... um, the truth of the Christian uh, testimony and the lies of communism. Uh, he then goes on to talk about not being alone. Uh, he he chronicles the blessings uh, and the sufferings and the hope in which he lives as a Christian. And he leaves us um, with this. Here in China, we long for rich theological resources, seminaries, solid teachers and pastors, healthy churches with religious liberty. Um, however, that's not what we have right now. Uh, so... He says, um, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Philippians 4, 11. Amen. Our brothers and sisters around the world, um, including in China, know the secret of being content in all circumstances. And those without Christ know only discontent. Let's be praying for them today. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.